Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. Welcome to Core Kinetic Podcast, episode 11. Um, And I actually double-checked to make sure it was episode 11 before I actually said it was episode 11 because I've got history for getting the number wrong. Um, So this month, I am joined by the wonderful Rachel Chester, and we are going to have a chat about a subject that seems to pop up more and more in uh, musculoskeletal practice over the past few years, which is the concept of self-efficacy. Now, I think self-efficacy is something that's discussed it can be a bit of a buzzword and I'm not always sure how well it's understood but we're going to get into that so firstly Rachel I'd like to welcome you and say thank you for joining me and um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself who you are what you do etc hi thank you ever so much for inviting me Ben Um, I've been really looking forward to this Um, I'm a lecturer in physiotherapy at the University of East Anglia and um, I work privately just one day a week as well. Um, I did my PhD about 2011 to 2015, um, and that was looking at prognostic factors for shoulder pain. Um, and that's really what, that's, I guess, has led to me developing an interest in, in self-efficacy in terms of, the, in terms of our findings. Yeah, and I think that's something that I definitely uh, want to get onto talking about later because I found uh, your research, yeah. you know, some really kind of um, influential and seminal work in this area, and I think it's actually sparked a lot of interest in in physio and musculoskeletal practice around um, self-efficacy. So, but where I think might be really nice to start is just around the kind of basic premise of what the hell is self-efficacy? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, I think it's a personal judgment. I think that's a key thing. It's, it's, an, it's our own personal judgment of our ability to succeed in a specific task. And it's important because it can then empower us to then face the challenges and persist and explore strategies about I guess what we need to do to actually overcome any challenges so that we can achieve that task. Um, I think it's important to highlight as well that it's only a theory. So unlike, um, I guess, range of movement or muscles, muscle strength that we can actually test and we can see, we can't see pain self-efficacy. It's something that's really been devised by psychologists, Bandura in particular, to help give us a framework to try and articulate psychological concepts, if you like. Yeah, I think you make a really, really good point there, actually. One, one point that I haven't heard many other people make is that it is quite a theoretical concept, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I think that's such a key thing, isn't it? And that really behaviour is so complex, isn't it? There's so many different factors that feed into it. And I guess pain self-efficacy is just one of those, but it's one that particularly as physiotherapists, we can really perhaps be mindful of when we're giving patients exercises or giving patients advice. It's so important to be aware of how confident they feel to go on and do the activities or the strategies that we've suggested on their own and so really to enable them to do that to help motivate them they need to have some sort of confidence in their ability to do that afterwards um yeah because I think I, I think that's why it's possibly so important isn't it as physios why we've perhaps 
latched on to this, um, I think as well as the increasing number of studies that shows it's important, not just for physiotherapists, but in other areas as well, you know, whether it's coming, you know, it's drug addiction, whether it's physical activity um, outside of physiotherapy, whether it's um, alcohol, you know, reducing alcohol consumption, whether it's dieting, it seems to be a common factor that it seems to, one of the fa important factors that predict how well we do in these different challenges. Yeah, and again, I think a really nice point you made there was that it isn't specifically a physio or a musculoskeletal uh, concept. You know, it's a really overarching and wide-ranging concept. We just, you know, in our area, we seem to have kind of thought, you know, this is important because it does, you know, especially if we're looking at active modes of therapy such as exercise or or, or, or whatever else we're trying to do around behaviour change, someone's actual belief in their ability, um, you know, to, to succeed at whatever task we're asking them to do is really, you know, quite an important factor. Yeah, I think it's, what's interesting, it's, it's, I mean, I've been trying to read more and more around it, but the more I read, the more diverse fields it's covered in. And I think one of the earlier things, so it's Bandura that actually proposed the theory. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting that a lot of his work was in education as well and in students' ability to learn. And he really broke it down and he showed that it was such a predictor of how well um, you know, young people do at school, at, at university as well. And he really broke it down to different types of learning as well. So he even covered things like, you know, you might feel quite confident at um, studying independently, but you might be less confident perhaps um, working in a group or articulating your findings or, um, you know, exams or assessments. It's, it's just so you can break it down into all those specific areas, which is so interesting. And I think that's so much, so much reference really to physiotherapy because we tend to think, oh, pain self-efficacy or exercise self-efficacy. But you can break it down to so much more than that as well. It, it might be that your exercise, confident exercises in in one particular context, but not another, um, you know, all those sort of things. And how confident well, as well patients are in terms of understanding perhaps what we've told them and then going home and actually articulating it to their friends and family who might be really influential in terms of, you know, their ability to recover as well. So, for example, it might be that some patients um, got quite good self-efficacy in terms of doing exercises and that sort of thing but it might be in terms of convincing significant others that physiotherapy is the way ahead rather than surgery or manipulation for example can be an you know that can overlap and it might be oh I'm not so confident actually in terms of external influences so it's quite interesting really. Yeah uh, um, again uh, I think a really nice point there that you kind of um, made was that we might be very, very confident in one aspect, but we might not be very, very confident in another. You know, if I, I suppose if we took exercise as an example, yeah. I could be very, very confident at doing, you know, uh, going for a run, which we might describe as exercise, but I'm not very confident about doing a deadlift. You know, yes, if you lump yeah. them all into, so am I confident about exercise or not? You know, have I got exercise self-efficacy or haven't I? I think that you've hit the nail on the head there. And I think it's far more specific than that, isn't it? I think it's really honing down to is what's our self-efficacy, what's the self-efficacy for the actual target goal, if you like. And the more specific we are, the more specific, I guess, the more accurate we can be in terms of our predictions and in terms of tailoring our treatment to that as well as, you know, not just the exercises, but in terms of the softer skills that go around that, the communication, the encouragement, the support that, you know, developing the knowledge and skills around that, the more specific we can be in terms of where we perhaps work, need to work on self-efficacy, motivation, confidence, um, perhaps more successful will be, hypothetically, what would you imagine anyway? Yeah, and I think that was one of Bandura's really big points, wasn't it? That, yeah. that it was kind of, you know, there aren't many general measures of self-efficacy because they lose their power the more general they become. 
Yeah, that's it, isn't it? And I guess that's where really we have to have some general ones, I suppose, for research. Yeah. Um, because if, especially if you, you know, the one that we used was quite, it was a pain self-efficacy questionnaire um, proposed by Nicholas. And it's it's quite broad, some of it, but it was, it was really one that had been used lots in musculoskeletal practice before. And I guess... Quite, it's quite good that that showed actually that there was an association with outcome. But I wondered if for each patient, hypothetically, we'd even chosen more specific questions. I wonder what the results would have been like then. But gosh, you can't do that in research. You know, you've got to ask some generic sort of outcomes and baseline questions. But um, but clinically, certainly, I think that the more specific we can be with our questions, the better, really. Yeah, and I think pain self-effort, the PSEQ is is what you're talking about, right? Um, I I think that it's kind of, it's quite general around pain, but it also does stick to the subject of pain, if that makes sense. So it's kind of more specific, but maybe not as specific as what specific movements hurt and exploring that and drilling down into that. And I think, you know, this is one of my bugbears, actually, that when I read research and it says, um, self-efficacy in it the first thing that I do is I want to know what they measured <laughs> yes and even I suppose even as well we need to be specific and you know is it exercise self-efficacy and even let's be honest is it starting exercise is it continuing exercise we're all quite you know I can use particularly diets is we're all quite good at starting diets but actually continuing to diet or continuing to exercise can be enough of that you know that could be almost a, a different topic in itself I guess but um yeah it, it, the more specific the better really I guess but I, I guess even when we're looking at pain self-efficacy there's a number of questionnaires for those but they might not even they although they're comparable we don't because it's a phenomena if you like it's a construct I wonder even if we compared each of those different pain self-efficacy questionnaires, if we'd always get the same results, because it might be that they're looking at slightly different things. You know, one might say, um, you know, I'm able to continue work despite my pain, where another focus might be on leisure, for example. Yeah, and and I think that, you know, the more... Do you think, though, that may be sometimes the problem of the questionnaire is that, is that sometimes questionnaires in general are quite broad and sometimes we lose something in that breadth. Yes, I mean, I mean, I mean, credit to those who have developed them. I think it must be so difficult trying to develop something that is just such a, just a wide idea and trying to bring it together. And it really has helped us to understand that it's an important factor from research. Um, I guess when you're in the clinic with your one-to-one patient, that's where it's no substitute for good communication and exploring what's important for the patient. And, you know, whether it's actually, well, I feel pretty confident taking on board your advice. I'm less confident about the exercises or I feel I could start them, but once I get back to work, I don't think I'll be able to continue them. Or for example, um, you know, I'm likely to be a bit stressed with work next week. There's lots going on. Um, I don't think, you know, with the best will in the world, I'll be able to overcome that. So it might be worth exploring a bit more specifically. I think that's where you can't, you can't, you can't substitute a good dialogue, can you? And, and I, I, there was a piece of research that came out maybe about a year ago or maybe two years ago. These years seem to run into one another at the moment. I'm not sure which year it is or anything anymore, uh, Rachel. <laughs> but there, there was a piece of research that was looking at uh, self-reported outcome measures f- from patients and there was you know one of the things that patients actually had to say about these tools was that it didn't really give them space to expand on on what they wanted to talk about and you know what they wanted to say their experiences couldn't be captured in a number or by the question on the questionnaire I think that's so true, isn't it? I, I must admit, I used to like the questions. I don't use them much now, but I did used to like them in terms of they provided me with a guide when I was less confident addressing all these factors. It used to be a guide. So perhaps some of the questionnaires that perhaps I had some questions on fear avoidance or lots of different things. I think rather than looking at the overall total, 
looking at the individual item questionnaires or items, questions or items, that was quite handy in terms of saying, oh, it looks like you're not so comfortable about going back to work here. You're happy going back to your spot, not so comfortable at work. Would you like to talk about that? And I think sometimes it can be a way a way in, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Um, but what I do like, I really, really like now is just the simple sort of exploring, you know, the ice, the ideas, concerns and expectations that GPs use a lot. I found that's a lovely way in. I know it's not quite pain self-efficacy, but I think it's a nice way in to really hone down quite quickly to what's most important to the patient. Yeah, could you just expand on what that is um, for for everybody, please, Rachel? Yeah, it's just really a way. You might notice it when you go to your GP, particularly during COVID. They a lot of the GPs might put on the front page, you know, what are your i. You talk a little bit about your symptoms, and it might say, "What are your ideas?" You know, have you any concerns? And I don't think they always put them as ideas, concerns, expectations. It might be in slightly different wording. You know, what would you like from your consultation? You know, are you con- are you worried about anything? They might use different terminology. Um, but really the ideas, I guess, are thoughts. You know, what do we think is the diagnosis? What do we think is what's going on? What do we think are the predisposing factors? Why do we think this has arisen? I guess it's the cognition. And then you've got the concerns. What are your feelings? What are you worried about? And then the expectation is really, um, it might be expectation of recovery, of outcome, or it might be expectation, what would you like from today's appointment? Um, and it's just it's just a nice, quick, easy way to start and get down to what's most important to the patient. Not for all, obviously, they're not all going to introduce that um, information straight away, but I, I find it quite a useful tool. Yeah, and I think we've had this discussion before, haven't we? And you brought up um, that that a word there in terms of cognitive, um, you know. And and I think that sometimes um, when we talk about expectations and self-efficacy and all these different things, you know, it feels like we're getting into the realms of psychology um, yeah. to some degree. Uh, and I think for a lot of people that that kind of worries them a little bit because it's like, I'm not a psychologist. You know, I don't really know anything about psychology and then that fits me to a T. I don't really know anything about anything, but certainly, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as a psychologist. Um, how would we start to define some of these things? You know, is it psychology? Is it, you know, cognitive? Is there a difference? You know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I share your concerns, really. And I thought even today, talking about self-efficacy, I thought, oh, heck, you know, I'm not a psychologist. Should I be discussing this? But at the same time, we do need to explore it. And I think that's a nicer way of looking at it, really exploring it. But I guess psychology is just really the study of the mind and thoughts, feelings, how they affect behaviour. I think that's all it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess it's, it's recognising that just communicating with somebody just the fact that we're human and that we're aware of people's thoughts and feelings is taking psychology into account it doesn't mean that we're psychologists and I guess it's just acknowledging that a lot of the treatments that we do are addressing those psychological aspects whether it's fear whether it's reassurance whether it's support whether it's encouragement whether it's just validation whether it's just listening to our patient but that doesn't make us psychologists and I guess it's the same even with the self-efficacy which is just one part it's just one tiny part it doesn't address the nuances or the complexities of why patients might have high or low pain self-efficacy but you know that might require further exploration from somebody else but it, it it does allow us to actually think about well, what what are the skills that we can use for somebody who this is a healthy or perhaps an unhealthy response to symptoms they don't quite know how to manage and which we can help with. And it might be that for many patients, just using some simple tools can actually help address that because they're just concerned. They don't feel that confident. Whereas for others, it might be actually self, no, I can't, you know, it might be actually, no, this requires somebody with more skills to address this. But at the moment, just, you know, as physiotherapists, just our communication skills perhaps might be enough. Yeah. And I, I think that sometimes maybe we need to separate a, a general view of 
psychology of two humans communicating yeah. for a specific treatment of patho psychology which would require a trained psychologist you know as you said it was quite it's quite broad isn't it psychology is just a study of the mind now i hope no one ever studies my mind because they'd be in for in for a real shock <laughs> neither mind <laughs> yeah but uh, you know i i'm kind of drawn and again this might be semantics I'm kind of drawn to this idea of of things like cognition and pain-related cognitions because it separates it from this idea of pathopsychology, which is, you know, getting out of your wheelhouse or your lane or or, or what have you. But, you know, I, I think that the distinction you've made there is that, you know, psychology isn't pathopsychology. It's just the study of, of humans broader than just that physical aspect, which, of course, you, that is probably the most important thing you do in treatment <laughs> yeah yeah I think you're right there it's just I guess it's trying to it isn't then I suppose it's got connotations hasn't it psychology and it's got connotations of physios and it's got connotations for patients as well yeah and that's and I, I that's perhaps where if we use terms like you know what are your expectations what are your beliefs have you got any concerns you know it sounds like you're not that comfortable of exercising. You sound like you might feel it, you know, it could do some damage or, you know, using those sort of words rather than, oh, you've got some psychological barriers to recover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really, you know, it has all sorts of connotations, whereas some of these feelings are quite normal responses when you've had pain for a little while and you don't, or even for a short period and you don't know what's going on. Not everybody has the knowledge and skills to actually understand where their pain's coming from. Um, or have perhaps explored these before. Yeah. Perhaps, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, terms like pain catastrophization, you know, they're, they're, they're almost catastrophizing in themselves, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, it's really like, word, it's really full it? on, isn't it? Um, yeah. Oh, do you know, I noticed that they're changing the, I don't know, I, it was a lovely paper. Oh, is it? I can't remember who wrote it, but they were going to change the word into pain-related worrying, and I thought yeah. that was a nice. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah. that's a bit more appropriate, isn't it? Contrast. It might, yeah. You know, you know, my approach to to lots of what happens in terms of you know our thoughts and our cognitions in this area is how much of it is pain related. It's not a patho psychological depression or anxiety. Is it a quite normal human response to a bit of a shitty situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think if we were to, to maybe go down that road rather than the kind of, you know, the, the more of a road of this is causing your pain, it's a pathopsychological problem like depression or anxiety, you know, that feels much different to just communicating with another human being who's got pain, who's got worry, who's got anxious about this problem because they don't know what it is. Um, I think that they feel like two very, very different ways of explaining yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's a lovely, I think that's a nice way of explaining it, Ben. I guess it's just one is just like, look, this isn't, you know, initially the fear avoidance and these concerns were really helpful, but they're not anymore. But it's difficult, you know, I need some help in moving on. And there's actually, these have become pretty entrenched. And even with physio's help, um, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to overcome them. Perhaps we need some extra help. And it's really, I guess, distinguishing between the two, isn't it? Or perhaps there's underlying mental health issues, perhaps anxiety and depression that have been that have also concurrently been stirred up as well yeah. Yeah. Um, and affected our ability to cope. Um, whereas perhaps, you know, another time, another context, it, it would have been fine. Um, well, I, I suppose that's the skill, isn't it? Is being able to differentiate when is this something that, you know, is not just, um, you know, a normal human response. You know, yeah. I think that's a, that's a really fair point. And maybe that sometimes where questionnaires can help, in, they can provide some information to say, you know, these are validated pieces of, you know, research that may be able to allow us to say this isn't quite in my wheelhouse right now. It's not in my skill set. And But I think that's the, that's the trick, oh, isn't yeah. it? Working out when is it you know, for want of a better phrase, when is it pathological and when is it not pathological? Yeah. And, I, I, and don't, I don't know exactly how to do that, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I think it, 
I, that's where I suppose really working in a team or discussing patients in a yeah. team is so useful, isn't it? And I guess those questionnaires as well, where sometimes you can think they might you know depending on the score you might think actually it's actually their knowledge here although they've got quite a high score these are things that actually I can address it's knowledge it's skills on how to cope or actually no they're scoring really high on anxiety and depression um, and that's what's bumping up the score this is perhaps where you know extra help is needed you know this is outside my scope of dealing this on my own so rather than just the full taking just the score the actual individual items can be handy then. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, looking at the composite aspect rather than just the overall score. I think that's, uh, that, that's because, you, because you could score very low low in, in, in multiple domains, but have one domain that's really pushing it up. Yeah. And that may be something that tells you you need outside help. Yeah, and it's, it's important, I guess, really, just like we have red flags for, um, you know, for serious pathology, We've got to appertain that as well to actually our um, the psychology as well. That sometimes actually I shouldn't be trying to 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 um, to struggle with this on my own as a physio. Actually, and it is quite tempting sometimes. I guess when you see somebody who have perhaps been to lots of different places and you're the first person they feel perhaps, or you're getting that impression that's listened. Perhaps you've got the time, but it can be tempting sometimes to stick with it. Whereas actually, it's recognising, hey, this is actually outside my scope. I actually need them to see their GP or to get some extra help. Yeah, and and again, I. <laughs> You know, I, I think that we've all probably taken on more than we should have done on, on some occasions. And sometimes we've probably handed it over a bit too quick on others. It's one of these yeah. things that's probably yeah. really difficult to get right, isn't it? I think that's something as a profession we're exploring at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, yeah, I, it's... Uh, I think musculoskeletal practice has become very broad, hasn't it, over the past few years? You know, it's not just about wiggling a few joints around and, and and telling someone what it is. It's really, you know, encompassing so many different dimensions of the human condition, um, which is really exciting, but it's also really challenging at the same point. Yeah, and I think that's where sometimes as well, it must be for people who have got so many pathologies going on as well, but they might also have those concerns. Sometimes for them and for us, it's challenging to know, I think we try to dichotomize, oh, this is this is due to fear avoidance, this is due to this, this is due to this, this is due to pathology in the tendon. And we try to actually rationalize it that way. And sometimes they're all so mixed up, aren't they, that we can't say that, you know, the drivers are one particular area than another, because we know how our thoughts and feelings will affect our immune system, our sleep, our healing, our repair. So it's really, it's, it's quite, it's quite chaotic, really, I guess. Oh, well, that is my number one pet hate is the word driver. So right? just, I'm going to tell the world that when people talk about pain drivers, <laughs> You know, look, I get it. If if you, if my son comes into me and he's falling off his bike, he's gashed his knee everywhere, I could probably point to it and say, that's the pain driver, right? Yeah. I think in a lot of musculoskeletal conditions, and you found this out in your research, yeah. didn't you? I mean, you know, looking at some of the complex kind of analysis you did through the carp type of stuff and things. Yeah. Um, you know, these there, there are so many different things going on uh, what is the driver? You know, is there is, is there even a driver? <laughs> it it yeah. just baffles me. And it's and it's a varies from moment to moment, doesn't it? So you know, we only looked. We didn't look at many psychological varies. We looked at expect. We looked at few, but um, you know, there's so many that we don't even know about that we haven't measured. You know, as 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 a, as a profession, um, there's so many factors, and also they vary from one moment to a moment, from one moment to. To the next you know a lot of these things you know say for example self-efficacy which is due to our results that I'm interested in but it's just one of many and that will vary from time it, it isn't a stable thing it, you know we might feel a high self-efficacy one moment an hour or two later we might feel it's a lot lower so um well I will give you an example of my changing self-efficacy Rachel yesterday I went and played tennis yesterday morning and I started off and I was hitting the ball beautifully. I had wonderful confidence. I was like Roger Federer, well, in my own mind, that I was like Roger Federer, <laughs> but obviously a younger, better looking version. Now, 
about half an hour in, it transpired I was playing terribly. And all my confidence, my self-efficacy for tennis absolutely disappeared. And I could hardly even hit the ball in the last set. So, you know, my if, if you'd have asked me at the beginning, before I started playing or two minutes in, my self-efficacy was sky high. If you asked me to play another set, I would say my self-efficacy was absolutely on the floor. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that sometimes when you watch TV, when you watch athletes, can't you, on TV yourself, you know, you can see their com- the confidence at least reducing, can't you, at times and then raising again. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you have, you know, tennis and golf are great examples where one guy wins a set six love and then loses the next set six love. Yeah. You know, yeah. when you're on a roll, you're on a roll, aren't you? And then suddenly yeah. it all evaporates and you feel miserable and hurt. And I cried for a couple of hours. <laughs> I sobbed gently while rocking backwards and forwards. and Because it was all going so well. Um, but that, guess, you know. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the way as well. I suppose you should work on your the self-efficacy in terms of when this is a nice example of when things aren't going well. Yes. Um, you know, how do we work with our patients in terms of, you know, they'll have time, for example, when they're, despite their exercises, their pain will be starting to get worse. They'll have a hiccup. It'll work. And so not just when they're doing the exercises, but that night, it might stop them doing something the next day. And it's how do we work on patients in terms of their resilience and their ability to overcome the challenges that they might face when things aren't going as they expected and that's I think that's such a big thing in terms of physio it's not just giving the exercises and showing that they can do them there say we're looking at exercises for example um exercise self-efficacy it's actually what happens when actually things go wrong and my pain starts to increase or I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to do the exercises how can we actually work with patients to help them to sorry that's something's gone on my computer there so how can we um work with them there to increase their persistence and really the energy they expend as well because I think that's a a big thing with self-efficacy is how much energy are you going to expend on this and doing what you need to do to get your outcome and if you've got low self-efficacy I think it's, it's suggested that you won't spend nearly as much energy. You'll give up a little bit earlier. You'll become yeah. a little bit disheartened yeah. earlier. Whereas if you've got higher self-efficacy, you're more likely to persist and think about, look, things aren't going well at the moment, but they did last time. They did my last set. I did well. You know, this has happened before. Sort of drawing on past experiences. And I guess that's where things like as well, being aware, perhaps that psychological flexibility, be aware of actually... I'm feeling really underconfident now. Things aren't going well, but I know I can stand back. I can think, actually, no, I've done well before. This is just a moment. Yeah, this isn't representative of my potential. Um, I can stand back and I can put into place some of those strategies. Yeah, I suppose that's a problem with questionnaires, isn't it, sometimes? What day do you catch someone on? Are you catching them on a a really good day where they're, you know, just generally life is feeling better? Or do you catch them on a really shitty day where, you know, everything is not going so swimmingly? So I think to understand that there is also a temporal nature to these things, to our psychology in general. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest things that we have to deal with uh, with people in pain, I think, is that, you know, it is about helping people deal with things when they're not going so well, because they're the days that you feel low and you feel depressed and you feel like you can't achieve the things and pain affects you more. Um, so I, I do think that understanding the temporality of some of these things is quite important as well. It is. And that's where I guess as well, we're given encouragement and support. It's, you know, I, I think sometimes perhaps as a profession, we can sometimes give exercises or give advice on self-management and off you go. You've got all the tools there. Um, And I suppose it's recognising as well that actually we want somebody to have our back when things aren't going well. Um, We seem, you know, lots of us are very confident when we're in a group or we've got somebody supporting us, but then we go off on our own and it's a very different story. And that's really where I think if we can, (laughs) you know, follow up patients and check things out progress them give feedback that could be so important 
Yeah, I, I think probably, you know, there, there's an element of supported self-management, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it can be, we see it as a bit of a success to get people self-managing. Um, maybe on the other side of the fence, for some people, it can feel like they're being a little abandoned. Yeah, So what, yeah. Do, we, what do we put in place that enables people to access support if they require it? Um, but that doesn't always feed into the system, does it, and the way things are set up? No, no. You can see why patient groups can be useful in that respect, can't you? Yeah, oh, a- absolutely. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think, yeah, j- just, you know, I think sometimes there is a dark side to pushing for self-management. Yeah, yeah. It, it can, I can imagine that you could feel a little bit abandoned. Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. So look, let's let's touch on on this pain self-efficacy thing. Because I think pain self-efficacy seems to be the most common measure of self-efficacy in MSK research. That seems to be the most utilized tool that people use to measure stuff, the PSEQ. Oh yes, yeah. Right? So what I think sometimes people don't realize is that when we talk about self-efficacy, generally we're talking about pain self-efficacy that is the most common measure um so what what is pain self-efficacy rachel well i think uh, my understanding is is i think i'm using the um the pain this pain self-efficacy questionnaire the, the questions that they use on that because that's what we used so i think yeah, i need absolutely. to interpret yeah. that, you know did it on that so i think they often use despite my pain So despite my pain, I can live a normal lifestyle. Despite my pain, I can do some form of work. Despite my pain, I can still socialise with others or I can continue leisure. So I think it's despite the pain, you know, I can look at ways around this, whether it's taking medication, whether it's actually um, modifying activities. Um, That's really, whereas I suppose we've got exercise self-efficacy, which is quite different one could say um is really looking at perhaps you know despite bad weather or despite being bored with the exercises despite and pain might come to it despite you know the exercises being a little painful despite other competing demands at work or at home despite despite being really tired you know I can continue my exercises and so quite different really absolutely Um, I think even a pain self-efficacy you know I know I'm trying to think of an example I use really is that you know your patient might say I don't think with this amount of pain I can do my you know do my gardening which is really important to me but when you really break it down it might not be that you know they can mow the lawn they can do all sorts of activities well it's actually cutting the hedge or pruning the roses yeah and then we can even break it down more and you know what well, can we explore that a little bit more? What, you know, what is it that we could do to help you feel more confident doing that? And it might be, well, actually, it just doesn't feel strong enough or it just doesn't feel mobile enough or it, I feel like it doesn't feel stable enough. And that's where I think it's so lovely that you can actually, if you can, try and link it to your objective examination then so that we're trying to link. It really, really is a bit more biopsychosocial, if you like. We're trying to link our clinical examination to um, exploring whatever aspects of self-efficacy we're looking at. Yeah, uh, you know, again, I think that's a wonderful point is sometimes that they feel a bit uh, separate from each other. You know, we have a psychosocial assessment. We have a clinical assessment. Yes. And actually, how do they affect each other? <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, probably, yeah. that's probably really important. Um, so what would you use, say, for uh, I think for exercise, there's a self-efficacy exercise scale, isn't there? The SEE. As, yes. as I recall, yeah. And so um, I don't generally use the SEE. Um, you know, I find that a few questions helps. But it's really yeah. important to make that what you've, you've done there is made a really nice distinction between self-efficacy for pain versus self-efficacy for exercise and the fact that they are two very distinct things. Yeah. Um, so when you hear people say it improves self-efficacy, that always, you know, doesn't send me into a rage per se, a minor one maybe. But my first question is self-efficacy for what? What type of self-efficacy is your treatment affecting? You know, because yeah. it's not a catch-all term. And I guess even then we need to think about self-efficacy for what activity and in what context. Yeah, yeah, and that is the point. I mean, if you look at Bandura actually 
had a pain management self-efficacy scale. Um, he did some stuff with pain itself. Um, yeah. And actually, when you look at how he talked about pain, it was looking at different types of pain, different pain severities. So oh, it really yeah. drilled down into a far more specific view of pain and pain self-efficacy rather than a much more general scale that we might view with the with the PSEQ. You know, but I do think it's really important for people to understand that pain self-efficacy is about our ability to deal with and tolerate pain. You know, yes, and actually, I think you that nicely. Yeah. yeah, and I think sometimes that's missed because people use, you know, so much of our treatment is about abolition of pain. Yeah, but actually, think, pain yeah. self-efficacy is a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's nicely worded. Actually, I guess because I think as well, I probably concentrate on the activities. You know, so pain during which so perhaps looking at the patient's goals whatever you know activities that they want to get back to perhaps one of the drivers will come into physio if it is one of the particular activities rather than just pain per se and probably concentrate on that a little bit so that we can look at perhaps getting some sort of mastery in some of those activities or at least actually graded down scales of those activities yeah. initially I, I wonder if if we could if, if a really nice way to further this conversation, you know, or further this line of research is find a way that we can individualise some form of questionnaire for people in a more specific way in, in terms of, you know, rather than having a set questionnaire, you have a, a questionnaire that actually allows us to fill, it, fill in the specifics. Do you know, I think I was reading something about this recently and Miles, Claire Miles, she'd done a, um, a review. It was it's about 10 years ago now of the different um, self-efficacy questionnaires. I say yeah. self-efficacy because I think, I don't think it was just pain self-efficacy. I, I can't recall. But um, yeah, I think she was suggesting, I think it was that paper, suggested even the MIMOP adapting the mime up a little bit so you're looking at really what the patients come in with and their main problems and then adapting that a little bit I think I've got this correct um and that it was her that referenced it but I thought it was a nice idea actually yeah it's a bit like the patient specific functional yeah. scale isn't it in that yeah. you know you you are how how could we maybe you know combining those two things would give us gold in terms yeah. of information yeah, yeah. But I guess then we're still just looking at self-efficacy, aren't we? We're not looking yeah. at all the different factors that might feed. So I know that's something that, you know, and I know perhaps I need to be wary of that when I'm sort of talking about my research, because that's what we found. And that's what I can talk about in terms of our findings. But really, in reality, there's so many nuances and complexities in terms of what drives our behaviour. You know, it's the opportunities we've got as well, the influence of others, of significant others, um, that we need to be mindful that we take into some of those into account as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that's always an issue, isn't it? What we found becomes yeah. important, yeah. But it doesn't mean it's the only thing out there that can have an effect. Yeah. And I suppose yeah. that's the problem with all subgrouping, isn't it? Is that you create subgroups from different measures, you know? And yeah. unless unless you have taken enough different measures, how do you know your subgroup is actually reflective of? what it's meant to be reflective of to some degree. But I am starting to waffle a little bit there into the realms of, um, you know, fantasy. So what did you find around pain self-efficacy in your research, Rachel? Do you want me to tell you a bit about the research? Shall I, I would love you to do that. <laughs> I could talk to anybody who wants to listen to it. <laughs> what we wanted to do was find out at um, at initial physiotherapy appointment, what predicted the outcome of physiotherapy. So what we wanted to do was think about all the different things that we might ask a patient in the initial assessment with any of these associated with outcomes six months later. So we collected data from 1,030 participants, um, full baseline data from those, and we looked at 71 potential prognostic factors in our assessment or a questionnaire beforehand. And this included questions related to demographics, shoulder symptoms, clinical examination, 
pain beliefs, lifestyle, smoking, exercise, work, leisure, so on, comorbidities, and outcomes with a spaddy and quick dash. And what we found was, because we did quite a few models, multivariable analysis, as you do, um, and we found that, you know, so what we were looking at there, we tried to report those that were consistently associated with outcome, and there was quite a number there was baseline pain and disability, as you'd expect. Yeah. Um, patient expectation, we measured that on a seven-point Likert scale, um, where completely recover, worse than ever, um, on the seven points. Pain severity at rest was a predictor. Not pain severity per se, just at rest. And I think... Oh, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, because I think other studies had looked at that and said pain severity isn't a factor. But when we compared our, I think it was about four of us that had looked at that, but we were the only one that looked at rest, and that was a predictor. Um, um, employment status, um, being unemployed or out of work was a huge predictor of a poorer outcome in terms of magnitude, a big right. difference, and pain, this pain self-efficacy. Other things as well, predictor of a better outcome, but less consistently so, because um, we did a number of, you know, we did six weeks and six months, was also... Um, Partaking in ex regular exercise was a predictor of a better outcome, for example. And then, yeah, and that's when we then did, we wanted to find out which of these were most important for a sort of clinical prediction. I don't say clinical prediction rule, but like a flow chart, a clinical guide, if you like, of the key things that might look at. And that's when we did our CAR analysis. And that's where it showed that really for the SPADI, there were just two things that predicted outcome. And that was baseline pain and disability and um pain self-efficacy. For the quick dash, it was just baseline pain and disability and patient expectation. And we put all the other factors into the model, but they weren't significant. I don't think significance necessarily the word with the car, but they were they didn't stay in the model, if you like, um, in terms of the analysis. So that was quite a surprise because we were thinking that there'd be quite, you know, four or five key variables, but oh, there wasn't. Oh. It seemed to be that these were the most important. And it was such that, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I can go on and on about my No, research. no, you, you carry I'm on, so mate, George. No. It, 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 it's fascinating. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's wonderful to, to see the, the, you know, the passion for uh, what you <laughs> do. That's a nice but, way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Yeah. I will stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that... Uh, so, look, one, one of the things that, you know, when it comes to pain self-efficacy, you know, we, we've kind of established it's about being able to live your life despite pain. How does that tie into lots and lots of rehab, which can often be about trying to get rid of pain? You know, I always find these two things challenging to kind of reconcile a little bit. So you're thinking about rehab, trying to get rid of pain. Yeah, well, our aim of yeah. rehab is is often to get rid of pain, isn't it? It's we're going to rehab, yeah. but in fact, it seems like a key factor in in outcomes, a predictive factor in outcomes, is actually our ability um, to tolerate pain or to live our lives with pain. And I just wonder how do those two concepts sometimes fit into each other? Do we actually affect people's level of pain self-efficacy by trying to get to deal with it better sometimes. It is sometimes. And sometimes just dealing with it better will actually reduce it as well, won't it? Yes. In terms of, you know, if we're going to go and carry on exercising or whatever, it, it will, you know, you've got that physiological loading at a peripheral level in terms of the, the tissues. And so you will actually perhaps get some um, physical changes, if you like, Um and so I guess it's all linked together. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I would say that would probably be my approach to chronic pain. I think sometimes yeah. people with long-term chronic pain, you know, people are waiting for the pain to go to get yeah. back to life. Whereas yeah. actually sometimes maybe getting back to life can potentially have an effect on their pain. Yes, um, yes. And it's, I it's think, both ways, yeah. yeah. And I think maybe sometimes that your research into, into things like pain self-efficacy help us understand that from a more scientific perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's real value in that. Um, right, I, I want to finish off just by, uh, we're just going to explore one word, which I think can be another complicated word for people to understand, which is prognostic factor. Because, uh, you know, your research was looking at prognostic factors 
Um, so could you explain what a prognostic factor is? I suppose it's any measurement or any anything really that you would measure at the initial assessment that is associated or related to the patient's outcome. Um, so if you think about it initially, I think I'm thinking about perhaps the progress framework. What they do is they it's was published in the BMJ and they try and break down prognostic research into four stages. Now, the first one is, for example, fundamental prognostic research. What it talks about is for your for patients, for example, attending physiotherapy for shoulder pain, what's the average outcome? So it gives us a mean or well, um, you know, a mean reduction of 20 points, say, for example, on the study. I'm just recalling that. But it doesn't really, and it shows you that it varies. So, for example, in our research, we have that, you know, 69% got better, 25% say the same, 6% got worse. But it doesn't, it, so it gives you an idea of the mean and the variation, but it doesn't really tell you individual factors that might predict how well you will do. And that's where product, product prognostic factors come in they're everything that you measure that are related to outcome yeah um, and so that's where we talked about some factors as we had like how much pain you've got at the beginning at rest will predict outcome um pain self-efficacy whether or not you're employed those sort of things are associated with outcome but it doesn't mean that they cause the outcome it's only yeah. that there's a relationship. And that's really important to, to be because you could have, you know, that, you know, wearing a tie means that you have a highly paid job. It might be that highly paid jobs require you to wear a suit and tie for cash. You have to work in stocks and shares or something. As a social determinant of health. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an association sort of thing. Yeah. So and then that's where you can go on to. You can actually combine some of these prognostic factors to produce a clinical prediction model yeah and yeah. that's where for the patient in front of you what seems to be you know what factors seem to be the most important that's where you get you can try and that's what our car analysis was in, in essence really yeah i mean i did read about the car analysis in your paper but it was way above my statistical pay grade i'm, I'm afraid no 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 i have to I, yeah i have to say it was my colleague mizan kondoka that did the cart analysis yeah. it was it, i have to give him complete credit for that there was lots of discussions backwards and forwards and i don't know how many times he had to explain it to me um but um yeah yeah, that it, was was a, pretty, it was very much a team effort. That one. Yeah, it was a. It's, yeah. It was pretty. Uh, pretty complicated um, stuff. Really. It was hard to write. <laughs> I can tell you, really hard to write. Yeah, to make but, it understandable. You know, and I think that's one of the things that you know when you have these prognostic factors. One of the things we still don't know is how to improve them, and if improving them actually changes the outcomes. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where that's where you sort of like. With, we, we know that from other research elsewhere that we can improve self-efficacy in yeah. some areas. Yeah. Um, but again, we need to see how much does this associated with outcome? Because I think it's and then it, in what sort of magnitude, you know, just it, is it a little bit of self-efficacy yeah. Yeah, associated yeah. with lots? Or is it, you know, there's lots to explore there. And also it might be that as well, these it might be that there are other factors that we need to target for treatment. So, for example, in terms of stratified care, in terms of what patients will respond to which treatments, it's not just prognostic factors that we need to target. There will be other factors there that are important as well. Yeah. So, you know, it, it might be that, for example, muscle strength is important. Um, you know, and there might be, and I think that's where it's really important to, to bring up that, you know, the fact that we found we didn't find muscle strength, for example, a predictor of outcome. It might be it's not that it's not important. It might be that physios are pretty good at addressing this. Right. Uh, it's part of our treatment. And so it doesn't become an issue. Right. You, you know, if you've got a weak muscle, we're very good at strengthening it. If you've got a stiff joint, we're good at mobilizing it. So those factors aren't so important because we're already addressing them. You're yeah. modifying them, if you like. And I think that's why it's important to identify the difference between prognostic factors for outcome and effective treatments. Yeah. They're not yeah. always the same. No, that's right. They I might, think that's they some overlap. 
that that's probably where we, you know, where I, I was about to say we, but it hasn't got much to do with me. Um, probably where it would be a good place to see um, some research is actually uh, interventionally in this area, identifying yeah. and, and actually trying to have an effect on self-efficacy and seeing, is it modifiable? How, by how much is it modifiable? And how much difference does that make? Um, yeah. And I think that would be a really exciting area for someone yeah. to research off the back of your great research into this prognostic stuff. It'd be nice as well to mix that up, isn't it? To see if, um, you know, how are conventional treatments that we're already using effectively, you know, our exercises, our strengthening, you know, mobilising, which all the different caveats that we use really, um, are actually, without having to do anything much different, are those already addressing pain self-efficacy? It might be that just what we're all, it might be interesting to just look at how pain self-efficacy changes longitudinally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as well as in RCTs, but, you know, it'd just be interesting in terms of longitudinal studies to actually include that as well and see if there's a difference, you know, as, phys as there's physical changes in our strength, mobility, um, function, is that associated at all with changes in self-efficacy yeah. of various um, types? They did do something similar with ACLs, where they looked yes. at uh, where they looked at strength and power, yes. and then compared that to psychological readiness. And yes. they actually yes. found there wasn't a relationship. So you could yeah. have wonderful strength and power scores, but you didn't feel like you were ready to return to play. You know, yeah. so it didn't have a, a linear psychological effect. Well, yeah. When I say it didn't have, you know, on average. You know, I'm sure yeah. for some people it does. You know, you, you know the average of the mean and, and all yeah. that stuff doesn't always tell us about the individual. No. But I think there is, there is a, a thought to say, well, if you get stuff done physically, then that has an effect on our, us mentally or psychologically or cognitively, whatever you want to call it. I, Looking at the research base in a few different areas, I'm not convinced of that. But yeah. how much could we tweak our physical interventions and add a bit of a slant that could improve self-efficacy. Yeah. So can can we combine these things to, to, to not only physically train people, but also combine that with something that makes them feel more psychologically confident as well? Yes. And yes. I think if we can do that, then then I think, you know, that, 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 that they would have a, a better relationship. Yeah. And that's where I suppose the N equals one, looking at individual patients as well, can be so informative, can't it? Just looking at lots of individual case studies, if you like, can be really, you know, give us some sort of picture of that as well. Yeah, well, the, the CFT guys uh, did something yeah. there. Yes. Kevin, Kevin Wernley, I think it was, uh, who's, a, who's an Aussie. Um, and I, what they did was they looked at changes in movement patterns and changes in pain and disability. And they found for some patients, it was really, really relevant. Yeah, and they found yeah. for other patients, it wasn't relevant at all. So, yeah, so yeah. again, when we look at these averages, you they know, we find that, no, you find that it probably isn't reflective of how important it was for the individual. And I think yeah. so when people say, does strength matter? Does movement matter? You know, I think from a, from a, a population level, sometimes we don't see a good connection but for different individuals, it may matter lots or it may matter not at all. And yeah, that's yeah. the problem, you know, that's the problem we face, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, look, um, we have been, um, go, we've been, that's uh, an hour's just passed there, Rachel. Where did it go? <laughs> So look, I thank you for your expertise and, and the eloquent way that you've got it across today. Uh, hopefully everyone is going to be able to understand self-efficacy a little better. Uh, I know that I do. So thank you very much for coming. And, you know, I hope to, uh, to, to hear more from you in the future. Um, can, if people wanted to get in touch with you, Rachel, how might they do so? Oh, if, you, if they could email me, it's r.chester at uea.ac.uk um, that would be great any ideas um, anything they want to add as well um, especially self-efficacy I must admit I'm learning lots and lots about it and you know I have to say hands up no psychologist and so you know it's a little bit um, I'm wary that I've lots to learn so if there's anybody that wants to you know add anything to 
to clarify any bits, that would be great. And also, just as well, if anybody's um, used any of our research in their practice, we'd love to hear them um, from them, whether it's actually changed their practice or if it's just really um, clarified bits that they were doing already. We'd really love to hear about that as well. So please do contact us. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. Oh, thank you. you thank you. Fantastic been... today. So I really appreciate you coming on and um, we will talk soon. Thank you. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.